I grew up as a young Doctor Who fan in the mid-1980s. Back then, there were three certainties in life. I should never talk about it at school if I wanted any chance of coolness. Doctor Who magazine's favourite Doctor poll could only ever be won by Tom Baker. And the worst Doctor Who story ever made was The Gunfighters. Not that I'd seen The Gunfighters, of course. It wasn't released on home media till the dying gasps of the VHS range in December 2002. And since I probably didn't own a VHS by then, I didn't see it till after it hit DVD in 2011. But back in 1985, I didn't need to see The Gunfighters to know that I shouldn't see The Gunfighters. Because I'd read Peter Haining's book, Doctor Who, A Celebration, and it declared, If ever reviewers feel tempted to pour scorn on the attempts by America to emulate British costume drama, a good lesson in humility could be learned from studying this serial as a demonstration of how the British cannot do westerns. It was billed as a show about the gunfight at the OK Corral, but it was more the massacre of the OK Corral. So badly was this show received by the public that its audience viewing figures dipped below the horizontal axis line on the ratings graph in the Doctor Who producer's office for only the first time in the programme's history. What made this serial so poor is the cumulative effect of so many bad points which on their own would be forgiven in most other stories. The script was pure Talbot Rothwell, the acting was not even bad vaudeville, and the direction was more West Ham than West Coast. It was not good. It was bad and it was ugly. It was certainly the story that decided in the mind of new producer Innes Lloyd that the time had come to rethink the policy of using historical stories in Doctor Who's framework. I was a 10-year-old in Australia. I had no idea who or what Talbot Rothwell and West Ham were. But Doctor Who merch was rare enough that a book like A Celebration carried the unquestionable authority of Holy Writ. And so judgment was passed. Not just in my mind, but the minds of whole generations of Doctor Who fans. The Gunfighters was a dud. Fast forward 26 years or so. 10-year-old Lucas is now 36-year-old Lucas, and still not cool. Doctor Who is passionately discussed in school playgrounds around the Western world. David Tennant and Matt Smith have put paid to Tom Baker's reign at the top of the DWM polls. And with some trepidation, I finally put my copy of The Gunfighters in the DVD player, hit play, and made two startling discoveries. First, The Gunfighters is a comedy, something I'd never once heard anyone mention. And second, I adored it. Allow me, sir, to introduce uh, Miss Dodo Dupont, Wizard of the Ivory Keys, and uh, Stephen Regret Teller, and lastly, sir, your humble servant, Dr. Kelly Gow. Doctor Who? Yes, you're quite right. I'm sorry, Doc. I was only trying to help. You try to help me anymore, you'll be the death of me. Go on. Now, don't be ridiculous. Doc Holland is a great friend of mine. He gave me a gun. He extracted my tooth. Good gracious me, what more do you want? The gunfighters played out unlike any Doctor Who story I'd ever seen. The Doctor and his companions have travelled into genre as much as they have into the past. Dressed as Hollywood caricatures of Western stock characters, Stephen and Dodo delight in the adventure but are mocked by the grimy citizens of the real tombstone in which they've landed. Meanwhile, the doctor quakes at the prospect of his dental appointment, and more often than not, seems one step behind the action. Doc, I would like you to meet the... The Clanton brothers. The Clanton brothers. Oh dear. I mean, uh, how do you do? Hmm? The story is wall-to-wall one-liners and manic double-takes. Until, that is, it unexpectedly transforms into a merciless bloodbath in its grim finale. Oh, and it's also the one story where Dodo, quite frankly, kicks ass. We're leaving now. 
What you aiming to do with that there offensive weapon? Shoot you if I have to. <laughs> now, how you reckon get back the tombstone without me? I shall try not to kill you. I shall aim for your arm. That's real thoughtful. Just at the moment, you're aiming right between my eyes. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that better? It's an improvement. Right. Now take me back to Tombstone. I was captivated by the story and by its writer, Donald Cotton. Over the next few years, I delved further into Cotton's work. I revisited his novelizations of his Doctor Who stories. First, his missing story, The Mythmakers, a novel I had fuzzy recollections of being bored by as a kid, but now discovered to be a convention-busting, hilarious, if not exactly child-friendly, tour de force. Next was the novel of The Gunfighters, then Cotton's adaptation of Dennis Spooner's story, The Romans. I even tracked down Cotton's original novel, The Bodkin Papers. From every page leapt a distinct voice, bouncing with a cavalier imagination, a sharp wit, and a bon vivant's joyful language. And yet, when I went online to learn about the man himself, Donald Cotton was a ghost. Google Cotton's name and you'll find a scant few biographical details, along with a photo of, spoiler alert, the wrong man. Wikipedia tells us that aside from writing Doctor Who, Cotton wrote radio plays for the BBC and co-created Adam Adamant Lives, the BBC's riff on ITV's hit spy adventure, The Avengers. He co-wrote a satirical album in 1968 and wrote, quote, numerous musical reviews for the stage. And that's pretty much it. After a 35-year career across stage, radio, TV and print, after writing for one of pop culture's most enduring series, after a life-crafting lines that struck like lightning, Donald Cotton had essentially vanished from the pages of history. I'm a writer and filmmaker. Part of what's always driven me is the desire to connect with others in a way I sometimes find hard in normal life. To find a sense of belonging. To leave something behind. Some kind of legacy. So seeing Cotton's life apparently wiped away by the tides of time wasn't just tragic. It was a little bit terrifying. And it sowed the seeds of an obsession. Who was Donald Cotton beyond a handful of credits? Could I take my own trip back through time to restore his place in our memory? This is Mythmaker, the lost legacy of Donald Cotton. I'm Lucas Testro. With a little more digging, more cotton crumbs can be found hiding in corners of the internet. Not that all of it's true. In 1995, a Doctor Who magazine feature on the Gunfighters reports that Donald Cotton had died in 1992. Awkwardly, Cotton was still very much alive at the time and living in Sussex. Not for the first or last time, the fact and fiction of Donald Cotton's life had blurred, just as Cotton himself blurred the realities of the Siege of Troy and the shootout at the OK Corral. Fortunately, Cotton's favourite newspaper, The Telegraph, featured an obituary after his actual death in 1999. That offered a few new details. A childhood in Nottingham, a father who headed the engineering department at the university there, two marriages, first to Hilary Wright in 1964 and then to Eileen Shaw in 1971, and a son from his first marriage, not named in the report. And Cotton himself offered glimpses of his story. He wrote a short review of his time on Doctor Who for a 1983 fan publication. Then in 1986, he made a rare convention appearance at a Doctor Who Appreciation Society event. How did Donald come to write for Doctor Who? 
I was engaged to the script editor's sister, that um, nepotism is not dead. (laughs) (laughs) Although, as I was to find, Donald's stories weren't necessarily any more reliable than the second-hand reports. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Hearing that plum, velvety voice, seeing him chain-smoking cigarettes, he goes through five in 45 minutes, was a tantalising glimpse of the man, but still something of a mirage. Cotton offers a few bon mots, but in those early days of fandom, you sense he's embarrassed by the experience of being asked questions about his work. I get the impression he assumes the audience doesn't want deep insight, so instead he serves up self-deprecating morsels of light comedy. No, if I wanted to dig beneath the showman, I'd need to find someone who knew him. Unfortunately, not many of Cotton's collaborators from that era are still around, so I decided to start where most of us started with Donald Cotton, with his books. I'm Nigel Robinson. I'm a freelance journalist now, but I used to be the target editor from 1984 through to 87. Nigel Robinson joined W.H. Allen, publisher of the target range of Doctor Who novelizations, in 1984. Donald had already been commissioned to write The Mythmakers. I recall when I got the um, manuscript, I took it home with me on the tube and I was crying out laughing. It was such a well-written book. Very, very funny. It was the start of a fond working relationship between the two men. He was a theatrical gent of the old school who can charm anybody. He must be in his 50s, mid-50s. Very ebullient appearance, um, quite short, but he carried himself with a sort of grace. Every time Cotton delivered a manuscript or one of his books was released, the two of them would go to lunch at an Italian restaurant around the corner from W.H. Allen. Robinson's fondest memory of Cotton are the stories he'd tell as the red wine flowed. He actually studied zoology, apparently, at university with philosophy, but he had so many different interests. Everything interesting. He's one of the most erudite men I've ever met. Perhaps it's not so surprising, then, that a mind as nimble, or perhaps restless, as Cotton's would have come up with an unconventional approach to the humble TV novelisation. Donald Cotton has narrators. Uh, so Homer, who has always been seen as this sort of lofty chronicler of uh, uh, myths and legends, becomes this this sort of rather eccentric and unlucky uh, uh, narrator for the mythmakers. That's Toby Haydock, who Doctor Who fans would know as a stand-up comedian, and as he puts it... I'm a sort of wandering professional anorak. Homer was famously blind, um... Uh, and Cotton obviously worked out when he was doing it. Hang on, there's a there's a character called Cyclops in the TV version, played by Tati Lemko, who has an eye patch and is a mute and ends up getting killed. And he said, Ah, oh, well, actually, Cyclops has lost an eye. So he clearly went, Well, I can sort of merge that with Homer a little bit by having. So Homer actually ends up losing both of his eyes <laughs> during the uh, the story. So you you have a much more sort of personal take unreliable narrator there's no objective detachment that is one normally associates with the description of action and character in a doctor who story you're very much in the thick of it with the writer if you like well um have you read a, a lot of the doctor who novels they are, are an anonymous narrator tells them and because mine were comedy, really. I thought, better have a a different sort of narrator, so it doesn't affect the others. Let let us have Homer, and in The Gunfighters, I don't know if you've read that, it isn't out yet, Um, I have the story told to Ned Buntline by Doc Holliday, so you have a a different voice. Someone who was there at the time, 
and is affected by the doctor and his friends. He wasn't given a brief. That was Donald's own idea. Had he discussed it with anybody at Target or this this just came in and the first anybody knew what he was doing was when the manuscript arrived? It's when the manuscript arrived, yeah. But his narrators aren't the only thing that set Cotton novels apart from anything previously written for Doctor Who. They're meta, acknowledging their own tropes as genre stories. In The Mythmakers, he pokes fun at the Shakespearean sounds of ancient myth. A boy, you say? said Hector, warming to his theme. Well... He died most like a dog, whimpering for his master. Did you not hear him? He feared the dark and was loath to enter it without you. Come, let me send you to him where he waits in Hades. Let me throw him a bone or two. Well, what can you say to a remark like that? But after a moment's thought, Achilles achieved the following. Your bones would be the meatier Trojan, though meat a trifle run to fat. Well, all's one. They will whiten well enough in the sun, and they may foul the air a little, but the world will be the sweeter for it. Not bad, really, on the spur of the moment, especially if you have to speak in that approximation to blank verse, which for some reason heroes always adopt at times like these. We shall notice the phenomena again, and it's as well to be prepared. Cotton's novels are more adult than the typical Terence Dix page-turner, and not just in their sophisticated language. The Gunfighters has the Doctor first meet Doc Holliday and Kate by accidentally walking into their... Uh, boudoir. In The Gunfighters, I, I do have Doc Holliday going to bed with somebody, which I, I did wonder about this, but of course people do go to bed with people. I, I, you know, <laughs> He's not talking down to his readership at all, which is something that a lot of the target authors did do, but he didn't. Did you have any concern whether this would appeal to child readers? Well, by my time, 84, we weren't particularly looking at child readers as such. I would always tell people to aim the writing style to an intelligent 14-year-old. Cotton also makes liberal changes to the televised stories. His novelisation of The Gunfighters, for instance, fixes a flaw in the broadcast version by putting the Doctor back at the heart of the action during the climactic gunfight. Controversially, though, he has the Doctor actually shoot two of the Clanton gang, even if accidentally. Well, I suppose I must admit it's a long time ago, um, just 20 years, in fact, since I wrote the television script. And I thought for a novel, well, you, you have to change it, I think. Maybe I was wrong, but I, I've changed both stories, Mythmakers and Gunfighters, to, to fit in the novel form. Uh, uh, and I have altered the plot, and I hope everyone will forgive me for that. Did you still have the script from the Gunfighters to use? Um, I had the first two episodes. Um, the, the second two were lost, gone forever. Oh, but I, I, had, I had the synopsis. Yes. <laughs> they, they were ceremonially burnt. I, oh, I, I remember the night well. <laughs> Cotton also takes liberties with the character of the Doctor himself. His Time Lord tends to be a pompous but lovable duffer. Oh, brilliant as the devil in his time, no doubt. Whenever that was. But just a shade past it, if you ask me. The Hartnell Doctor in, in Cotton Hands, Cotton's Hands is interesting because he's, he's a bit... He's a... He, he will get himself into trouble for the sake of a good joke. I particularly enjoy this description from the gunfighters of the Doctor operating the TARDIS. In any case, 
The doctor was already clutching at an apparently haphazard selection of levers with the air of a demented xylophonist who finds he's brought along the wine list instead of the score. Far from being the sort of wise, omnipotent uh, traveller who knows all about history, you know, he calls Wyatt a Mr. Werp. He's a bit more of a sort of blundering old fool, and yet he's wily with it. So I don't think he completely undermines the Doctor. I think he just... The Doctor just seems slightly more absent-minded, shall we say, rather than stupid, although I do think that is me being generous because I, I think he does play a bit fast and loose with the Doctor, but I, I think he gets away with it because it's so gleefully done. Although you have to admit, he does get pretty close to the line in at least one passage from the Romans. The Doctor writes this diary entry after stumbling across a slave auction where his companion Barbara is being sold to the highest bidder. One of them, a really quite handsome but woebegone young woman, bore some slight resemblance to Barbara, although the latter, I am sure, would never have consented to appear in public in so dishevelled a condition. However, the similarity was sufficient to give me further cause for self-congratulation that I had had the wisdom to leave Miss Wright at the villa, where she can come to no possible harm. The slave girl appeared to sense my interest, and waved at me frantically, but I nevertheless rejected Sevcheria's insulting invitation to make him an offer for the poor woman, and before hurrying out after Vicky, I saw her purchased by a really ill-favoured fellow who gave his name as Tavius. I shudder to imagine what her future life will be like in the service of such a creature. Ah, the Romans. I love Donna Cotton's version of the Romans. Talk about postmodern. Cotton transforms Dennis Spooner's televised story into a series of letters and diary entries written by the Doctor, his companions, and other minor characters from the story. But Cotton's effort wasn't so revered by fans at the time, nor by his editor, Nigel Robinson. I have to say that I don't think it quite gelled together, possibly because it wasn't Donald's own material. I didn't think he had quite as much enthusiasm for it, and I think fandom weren't quite as impressed by the Romans as they were by mythmakers and gunfighters. I remember the review in Doctor Who magazine saying, this is the first and I guess the last time Donald Cotton has been given somebody else's story to adapt. And I remember being furious because let's not forget, this is before the days of video. So there was a certain mindset, and it was certainly mine, is that the whole thing about visiting past Doctor Who stories was to recapture as closely as possible what it must have been like to watch them. I'd read the books so that I could imagine what the television episodes would look like. So when Cotton comes and completely derails the original script and goes his own way to a to a 10-year-old or whatever, that, that was... I mean, I was baffled by the Cotton books, but I was... I was the principle of changing the stories offended me. And the idea that because you couldn't get the Romans on video, this was my chance to experience the Romans as televised. And it was an epistolary um, sort of Mickey take um, made me not very happy at all. And Target clearly felt that because they never asked him to do any more. But I would I would love there to be more Donald Cotton books because I think he's a hoot. Although Nigel tells me there was a much more mundane reason for Donald Cotton's disappearance from the range. There was nothing really left for him to novelise, which would suit his writing style. I was thinking like something, for instance, not to throw you under the bus, but um, something like the Time Meddler, for instance. I was just thinking that myself. Yeah, he he could have done that. He could have done that. And what's the great never-written Doctor Who book Toby wishes had been given to Donald Cotton? I would be really interested to see him tackle some science fiction. 
because a lot of this is, you know, he's messing about with history and he's in, in invoking, you know, certainly in the gunfighters, you know, real characters or, or reported characters at least. Um, and he did he did submit a science fiction story at one point, didn't he? The, was it the Herdsman of Venus, something like that. Um, so I'd be interested to see how he takes that sort of that cheeky historian, that uh, um, reimagining classicist. Uh, in I, I'd be interested to see how he turns that imagination into science fiction, and, and maybe you know a, a Donald Cotton novelization of the Keys of Marinus would perhaps make all of those worlds that we only visit for a short amount of time. Uh, uh, perhaps more gleeful and offbeat and interesting. Or the chase, because the chase is actually supposed to be funny in places. Yeah, one of those sprawling epics I would have loved to have seen Donald Cotton have a go at. A Donald Cotton version of the chase. Now there's a tantalising thought. Cotton did write one other novel for Target, but it wasn't a Doctor Who tale. We'll get to that later. But for now, I had one last lead I could ask Nigel Robinson about. Um... Do you know, now, this is, I guess, a bit about a, a, a publishing question. In terms of how dedications come to be, is that something editors ever have anything to do with? I mean, the dedications on the title page? Yeah. No, it's just down to the author himself or herself if they want to do one. Right. Because one of the other unusual things about Donald Cotton's Doctor Who books are their dedications. The Mythmakers is dedicated to Humphrey Searle, who wrote the music. Literally, Searle was the composer of The Myth Makers and a regular collaborator of Cotton's. But the dedications in the other books get more unusual. Well, can I ask if these names ever came up? There's The Romans. The Romans is dedicated to Anne Wood with love and patience. <laughs> no. <laughs> no idea. No idea at all. And The Gunfighters is most mysterious of all. For Tamsin with coloured moon clouds. I have no idea who Tamsin was at all. Well, so much for that lead. I'd made some progress talking to Nigel, but I was still left with more questions than answers. And with my dedications dead end, I was fresh out of people to talk to. The Telegraph's obituary of Cotton mentions he had a son with his first wife, Hilary. I had no more details to go on than that, but surely the chances were good that the son would still be alive and kicking. So, I hit the family tree websites. Donald Cotton and Hilary Wright were married in Hastings, Sussex in 1964. From 64 to 71, six baby Cottons are born to various mothers with the maiden name Wright, but just one, Christopher H.P. Cotton, was born in Hastings. That middle initial, H, was also shared with Donald himself, Donald Henry Cotton. Surely this was Donald Cotton's son. So I start Googling and I email nearly 100 Christopher Cottons around the world. I also send away for Donald's death certificate. Maybe the witness's name will lead me to Cotton Jr., and while I'm waiting for replies, I search newspaper records for reviews of Donald Cotton's theatre productions. They start to fill in the details of Donald Cotton embarking on his professional career in the 1950s. Donald abandoned his studies of zoology at Nottingham University to attend the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Its 1950 student showcase on the level provides one of his first reviews, with the stage noting... On the whole, the sketches and lyrics by Donald Cotton, with their sharp satire and ingenious puns, were good, if one takes no offence at long words. In June 1951, Cotton took his first literary excursion to Troy, 14 years before the Mythmakers. His light opera Pandarus, or The Ilium Smile, was a burlesque of the period leading up to the Siege of Troy, 
Court magician Pandarus makes love potions to compel young princes to fall in love with his niece, Cressida. Among the young cast of Pandarus was Trevor Martin, later to play Doctor Who himself in the theatre production Seven Keys to Doomsday. Pandarus was another early success for Cotton, with the stage declaring, The piece is full of delightful humour. But it's 1952 that brought the next important step in Cotton's career, as he met his first major artistic collaborators. My name is Nick Monat. I am the son of Donald Monat and June Dixon. In the 1950s, they ran a small theatre cabaret club in London called the Boltons. Cool sidebar, Donald Monat would later become Mr Steed in South Africa's radio version of The Avengers, but that was a decade away. It was at the Boltons in 1952 that Monat and June Dixon first met Donald Cotton. Writing in her memoirs, June Dixon later recalled Cotton's arrival. Her son Nick agreed to read it for me. Meanwhile, our clubroom cabaret had made us three new colleagues. One was a rather oddball young man called Donald Cotton. The product of an upper-class education, his father was an esteemed professor, he had dropped out of university and was seeking to make his living writing and performing extremely witty, quite offbeat lyrics and sketches. He wasn't much of an actor, but we loved his work, and we were determined one day to use it in a full-scale review. Then there was Philippa Reed a struggling actress who had a small act where she sang offbeat folk songs in costumes of her own making. Tall, blonde, striking-looking in a Meryl Streep way, married to a poet. She was the epitome of what became known in the 1960s as the counterculture. As was, I suppose, Donald Cotton. Cotton soon rose to the role of co-writer in the Bolton's Christmas Cabaret. Numerous productions followed, culminating with Light Fantastic in 1954. June Dixon recalled, Light Fantastic was the happiest show we ever did. In the cast, we had Philippa and Philip and Tony Snell, and a brilliant young black choreographer and dancer, Malcolm Clare. Our material was diverse, eclectic one might call it, with some of Donald Cotton's funniest and most esoteric writing, sharing the stage with musical numbers, and the best of Donald and Jimmy's satirical songs from the Bolton's Review. Nick shares with me photos from these productions. A young Donald Cotton, long face, hawk-like nose and cocked eyebrow, poses in a tuxedoed singing trio. Each holds a cigarette in hand. Another photo reveals Cotton strumming a guitar, not entirely convincingly, while wearing a cowboy outfit that would make Peter Purvis blush. Unfortunately, there are no recordings of these shows, but amongst Donald Monat's archives are Cotton's original scripts for a couple of sketches, complete with pencil annotations. So I ring round some actor friends and ask if they'd like to perform a Donald Cotton sketch not heard for 66 years. And here it is, from Light Fantastic, Donald Cotton's Private Dives. Come in. Darling, is your husband out? Yes, he's gone for a walk in the botanical gardens. Oh, now don't twitch your lip. You should make allowances for him. Naturally. I invariably make allowances for husbands. It avoids making them to their wives. Now you're trying to be clever. Why do you always spoil things by trying to be clever? That is the cry of a defeated woman. Be careful, darling. Mm, Cynical sweet. And in any case, you don't need an allowance. You have a beautifully furnished flat and a husband who goes for walks in the botanical gardens. What more could you want? But that's all he ever gives me. Furniture! We live in an atmosphere of frequent rows and occasional tables. But surely I make things easier for you. I give you a present each week and a past continually. Get me a drink, will you, darling? Very well. Look, why don't you leave your husband and come away with me? 
Oh, how could I? It's so easy to say that, but think what it would mean for me. Precisely. What would I get out of it apart from a paragraph or two on the back page of a Sunday newspaper? Darling, I would never let my heart affect the circulation of a newspaper. These things can be done very quietly nowadays. You could divorce your husband and marry me. No one need ever know. And what about my husband? Well, yes, I suppose he'd realise, given time. I thought you went for a drink. So I did. What happened? It got away. Here you are, darling. I wonder that you think it necessary to marry me under the circumstances. Well, that's because you don't understand the system of income tax relief. You see, it would mean... Sometimes I don't understand you at all. You seem to treat love as, well, an accessory to life. An accessory after the facts of life, dear. No, sir, madam is not engaged, but it is a very promising friendship. Darling, who was it? I haven't the faintest idea. Oh, do you think it was my husband? I don't like to. Surely it isn't very probable. It may easily have been him. Oh, you must be more careful. Husbands often ring up to see if their wives are alone. Not all of them. I know lots who don't. They leap about on the front at Brighton with tiny, tiny secretaries. Will you stop being facetious? If that was my husband, he's probably on his way here now, bristling with solicitors. You must leave at once. Oh, don't send me away, darling. I'm so terribly, terribly in love with you. I don't know what it is. You've done something to me. I never touched you. Kindly get out of my flat. Very well. I can take a hint. I suppose you don't believe in free love? It isn't free, dear. It merely comes a little cheaper. Oh. Oh, well, there doesn't seem to be much more to be said, does there? Will you please go? Of course. I suppose you wouldn't let me disgust you in the basement kitchen? Very well, then. What's the matter now? There's someone coming up the stairs. Quickly, you must hide somewhere. I'll be being rather restoration comedy, dear. After all, it may not be him. Oh, it's too late now. We must tell him everything. What a ghastly idea. Oh, you're right. He's so frightfully jealous. He'd kill you and... Unless... How about a little cyanide, darling? Oh, not before six o'clock, thanks. I no, never... No, I mean we can poison him. How? During the conversation. Oh, don't be silly, dear. He'd notice. Not until it was too late. Ha! Just as I expected. <gasps> oh. <laughs> Curse it. Wrong flat. The Bolton's crew later adapted Light Fantastic to become Britain's first colour widescreen musical film. Now called Five Guineas a Week, it assembles the songs from Light Fantastic to form a loose story about a group of young people hanging out in the boarding houses and cafe bars of Chelsea. I missed my luncheon trying to find a place for the night. Even a dungeon would do if the price were right. I've seen an attic where the air is aromatic, the bed has an ominous creak. The windows have blown in and breakfast is thrown in for five guineas a week. Five Guineas a Week is bright and energetic, with a particularly engaging lead performance from Georgia Brown, who'd later become famous as Nancy in the stage production Oliver. The songs move from traditional musical fare to club torch songs. Cotton's contribution is called Loot Song. For a night gotta eat, and a night never has time, chivalry seldom pays. For I did quite a few bits of daring do, 
But it never worked out as I planned. Cause for each ruddy thing, a considerate king would give me his daughter's hand. In a scene the purpose of which is not terribly apparent, a cafe entertainer sings the tale of a knight looking to get rich from daring do, but being rewarded only by the hand of successive king's daughters. Till he eventually lands in court for bigamy. And a maid's distress couldn't move me less. I'm careless and callous and wise. Should you ask me why, I just shudder and sigh. Does anyone want any wives? Does anyone want any wives? Lute Song suffers from having the most tenuous of connections to an already tenuous narrative. And it doesn't help that the performance boasts some of history's worst guitar miming while lacking any of the personality needed to sell the comic irony of Cotton's lyrics. But even if the song is one of the less successful moments in Five Guineas a Week, the film's still notable in Cotton's career for establishing an unlikely pattern. Although Donald was a proud classicist, yearning for more civilised times past, he would play a key creative role in a number of groundbreaking productions that transformed how media was made in the UK. More on that in episode two. Five Guineas a Week was also notable for its cast and crew. Camera operator W.D. Williams would later be the cinematographer on Gandhi and producer's assistant Peter Yates would later direct the iconic Steve McQueen thriller Bullet and Krull. Meanwhile amongst the cast, dancing up a storm alongside Georgia Brown is a performer credited as Len Main. Len would later be better known to Doctor Who fans as Lenny Main, director of Curse of Paladon, The Three Doctors, The Monster of Paladon, and The Hand of Fear. Here though, Lenny moves with silky grace. There's an unmistakable sense of drama to his performance that foreshadows his later move behind the camera. Lenny and Donald were presumably friends, because they collaborated again in 1957, when Lenny choreographed Mad About Osman, a cabaret written by Cotton to promote bath towels. Cotton later recalled that Mad About Osman was probably for excellent reasons the only advertising review ever performed. While Lenny's partnership with Donald was just starting, Cotton's time with the Boltons had reached its end. June Dixon explains in her memoirs. In the spring of 1955, our angel resurfaced and assured us that he was now trying to find a suitable theatre for Light Fantastic. So we made tentative plans to put the cast together again. But there were problems. Philippa and Donald Cotton were having a passionate affair. He told us she had become his muse. He was planning his own review for her to star in, and neither of them would be available. The result of this epic love between Donald and Philippa Reed was the show Airs and Graces. It opened at the Irving Theatre Club in March 1955 to rave reviews. This is one of the wittiest and most intelligent after-dinner shows to be seen for some time, said the stage, going on to declare that Cotton had rescued intimate review from the rut into which better-known authors have lately condemned it. The Kensington Post called it terrific, saying the wordplay is razor sharp and bubbling over with a wit which is always incisive but never malicious. Airs and Graces was a hit. Donald and Philippa's romance? Less so. Philippa Reed doesn't appear in listings for any of Donald's productions after this show. But Donald's star was on the rise. 
1955, he received his first TV commission from ITV, writing The Merry Christmas, a musical adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The Merry Christmas starred Hugh Griffith as Scrooge in a production that the stage described as a strangely festive entertainment. What can make a Christmas show strangely festive, I wonder? Anyway, it was presumably successful because The Merry Christmas was staged again on ITV for Christmas in 1958. That same year, Donald had also been a writer for Better Late, a late-night TV show. To round out the 1950s, Donald returned to theatre for his highest-profile production yet. The Demon Barber was a musical comedy version of Sweeney Todd, written by Donald Cotton with music by one of his Bolton's collaborators, Brian Burke. Appearing at the bottom of the cast list, Barry Humphreys, making his UK theatrical debut as Jonas Fogg. The Demon Barber opened at the Lyric Hammersmith on the 10th of December 1959. Reviews were... Cutting. Elaborately insipid, a feeble adaptation. The evening drags along like Pope's wounded snake, and it was only now and again that I could summon any laughter. The book is by Donald Cotton, some of whose rhymes, for example, I knew that the hothead would cut his carotid, are certainly adventurous. It is unfortunate that the entertainment lasts for nearly three hours. Yes, Cotton's big stage bow had proved a setback. And speaking of setbacks, I was getting nowhere with my search for Christopher Cotton. But I had mail. All right, here we go. Exciting moment. I've got an envelope here from the General Register Office. I assume this is going to be Donald Cotton's death certificate. And fingers crossed, in here I'll find the name of the witness to the death certificate, which might give me some lead to contact somebody who knew Donald Cotton. All right, here we go. Certified copy of an entry, death, 247, Registrar District, Hastings and Rubber, in the county of East Sussex, date and place of death, 29th of December, 1999, name and surname, Donald Cotton, male, place of birth, 26th of April, 1928, in Derbyshire, that's him, writer, uh, name and surname of informant. Here we go. Certificate received from Alan R. Cray's coroner for East Sussex. Inquest held on the 16th of February. It was a coronial inquest. Cause of death, pyothorax, pneumonia, traumatic fractures to ribs. Verdict accident. That's it. So I don't have any informant here no like witness but there was a coroner's inquest into how he died raises more questions than it answers really doesn't it next episode on Mythmaker: the lost legacy of donald cotton because he was lying in his teeth, he wasn't engaged to the doctor. He was very married and rather broke. We wanted to do more with Doctor Who. We wanted to tell different kinds of stories. And they dropped him, and he, he took that quite hard. Mythmaker: The Lost Legacy of Donald Cotton is made by me, Lucas Testro. Thank you to this episode's guests, Nigel Robinson, Toby Haydock, and Nick Monat. Performing Donald Cotton's sketch Private Dives were Petra Elliott, Benjamin McKenzie, and Noah Moon. 
Chris Horton performed the readings from Donald Cotton's novels The Mythmakers, The Gunfighters, and The Romans. All other readings were by Tim Dickinson. You can find a full video of Donald Cotton's Doctor Who Appreciation Society appearance as a bonus feature on video 79 of the Mythmakers series, available at timetraveltv.com. Both panels on that video are fantastic and well worth tracking down. 